You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's open in prayer. Father, this morning as we trust your word, as we read it, we, Lord, ask you to work it into our hearts, into our lives, so that we might be honest and uh, good representatives of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We give you the praise for everything that will come from that, and we trust you in it, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last week we finished up with um, chapter 5. We'll read through chapter 5 again in a minute. Chapter 5, verse 2, Paul was concerned about, he, he dives right in in chapter 5 after laying four chapters of groundwork, uh, or four, what we are calling chapters of groundwork, for dealing with the, the major sins that were occurring in the church at Corinth. He dives right in in chapter 5 with the sin of a man living with his father's wife. And what what concerns him, that actual sin concerns him greatly. But what seems to concern him more, what he spends more time on, is the fact that the church wasn't doing anything about it. They they were pretending, I guess you can say. They thought they were being tolerant. And he calls it arrogant. Uh, when we When we disagree with God's Word, and you will know whether or not we disagree with God's Word by the way we live, Maybe not by what we say, but by the way we live. When we disagree with God's word, we demonstrate it in our lives. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. They were demonstrating by their lives, by their church actions or lack of actions, that they were arrogant. They believed they had a better way than God did. God had already shown how to deal with this sin. And in the New Testament, Paul gives, we'll we'll be walking through Paul's method of dealing with this uh, particular sin of of a sexual nature. Um, But, What we must remember is that at the root of it, at the root of it is pride and arrogance. And uh, so we're going to read through chapter five and then we'll start. We'll we'll get to chapter five, verse three. We finished off with two last week. Let's see how much we've got. Yeah. First Corinthians five. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit might be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, that you may be in new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. 
I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do not do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Quite a bit in this chapter. We left off, as I said, with uh, church discipline, uh, where Paul was concerned that the church had become arrogant and were tolerating a sin rather than becoming what they properly should have become, which was mournful. They should have been saddened. They should have been devastated, hurt by this for a number of reasons. One, it impugns the nature of God. Two, it is not good for the people doing it. It's harmful to them. God didn't give us interdictions to sin because he needed filler for this book. You don't put arsenic in your food. Why? What will happen to you? You will die. And and nowadays, we have because of lawsuits, we have to have all that written. So that's why on your box of arsenic, it says, do not add to your vittles. Doesn't it? When you pick up a, a hair blower today, it says, do not use in the bathtub. It's it's to to most of us in here, at least it's it's inherent. It's it's obvious, but people have tried it. And anyway, Paul is concerned that they wouldn't know what to do here. Why don't you know what to do? I was there for 18 months. I taught you the whole council of scripture, he says. And I'm sending Timothy. He talked about a little bit before this. But anyway. So he says, you become arrogant and not mourn. Now, when someone sins and we observe it and we're required to take action on that sin, we are not to become arrogant. We're to become saddened, hurt, devastated. Far better frame of mind to deal with sin than pride and puffed up arrogance. I'm better than you. I would never do that. But for the grace of God. Have any of you ever heard that saying? But for the grace of God, there go I. Anyway, we, we left off. Yes, Pat. Oh, no. No, this is actually Paul quoting Jesus in John 17. Yeah, essentially. At least that's my opinion. And uh, I think I can demonstrate that because it's the same thing is going on here that what that Jesus dealt with in John 17 in this part of his prayer. Um, so we left off with the fact that we were dealing with a, a, a society in which immorality had a very very low bar. It was, or, or I guess I should say righteousness had a low bar. You could be righteous if you had a mistress, which you kept for sake of pleasure, and a concubine, which you kept for the care of your body, but you used your wives for legitimate children. Ugh. I can't think of an, I mean, ugh. The gospel, however, as we talked about, is up to this. Praise be to God that the gospel is able to set us free. And so that's why Paul said in Romans chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, he said, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death, from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Paul knew that the spirit of God by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, could set anyone free. This man and this woman can be set free from this. And that's what Paul will have in mind. So verse 3, we'll start there. For I, on my part, though absent in body, 
but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Now, I had a lot on the word judge, so there it is. It's to determine, to resolve, to decree, to be of an opinion, um, to, to, to judge, to decide, to think, to separate. Properly, the word comes from an I- the idea of separating, sorting something out. Yesterday, we picked raspberries. Or actually, my wife picked raspberries, and I ate the produce thereof, and it was wonderful. <laughs> but I was busy working on other stuff. Really, I was. But she separated out, as she was picking them, I guess you could say. She separated out in her mind the, ri- the ripe ones from the unripe ones. That's the idea here. You make a decision to do something and not to do something. And to distinguish, to come to a choice, to posit a verdict either in favor of or negative, which rejects or condemns. So, this idea that Christians are not to be judgmental is false on the face of it. It's how we judge and why we judge. The way we judge, how, far more important. Why we judge, far more important. These Corinthians were not judging properly at all. And they had a sin going on that was a vile, vile action. So, Paul had earlier cautioned the Corinthians not to judge the hearts of fellow believers. We cannot know each other's heart. And it's not, I'm, I'm so glad. I don't want to. It's like reading minds. No thank you. I have enough trouble reading my own. We're not to judge the hearts of fellow believers regarding their degree of faithfulness and commitment to the Lord. Yet here he counsels him to immediately pass judgment on this blatant immorality. Sometimes people will use the idea of not being judgmental in order to avoid dealing with sin, to avoid dealing with open sin, because it's uncomfortable to confront people. We are to judge what is clearly interdicted in Scripture and deal with it accordingly. But we are not even to assume we can judge the hearts of men, let alone attempt it. And that is where the word judge comes into play here. We are to separate out what is biblical from what is not biblical, what is moral by God's word from what is not moral by God's word. Um, One reminder about situations like this. So now he said, I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit. Think about this now. He's a long distance from Corinth. He's received a report, remember, from Chloe. And he's received this report, and he's concerned about what's going on in the church. So he's received a report that this has happened. He's not there to actually judge it. So he's acting on someone else's information. It's very important that your information be from a truly trustworthy person who has not editorialized the information that they are transmitting to you. And that it is so tempting when something happens, we see it happen, we see a wrong or a right or whatever, and we, we pass that information on. A car runs into a deer, which becomes an elk, which becomes a moose, which becomes Sasquatch, which becomes a moose and Sasquatch fighting by the time it makes it into the newspaper. Now, I'm, that's kind of hyperbole, but not really. Sometimes when you read an account of something, and then you talk to the people who were there. Now, I know, the, I know about the, the unreliability of eyewitnesses, etc. But God gave uh, special approbation towards eyewitnesses. He talks about them. People who saw things that happened. When you talk to an eyewitness about something, sometimes it's a far different story from what actually happened. Marked well when I had children in the home. And I would hear something. And I would go down and ask what caused that gigantic noise, which sounded like a train derailing in our kitchen. 
And it was, yo, Dad, a cup fell off the counter. I was doing my Clinton voice again. I got to quit doing that. And and on the floor are the remains of any number of things. Anyway, so Paul must have completely trusted the information he received in order to be able to make a judgment of such incredibly important nature from afar. It will and and it will always serve us better if we get first-hand information before we make a decision on something like this. Know the facts. This again would be why Paul was sending one of the reasons why Paul was sending Timothy because he knew he could trust Timothy to properly handle any situation that was happening in the Corinthian church. And that Timothy would further search out what was going on before any action would be taken. And that's what we have to do. We have to be careful not to act. This was an apostle. We are not apostles. Now, they're not. They put their pants or their togas on one leg at a time. They're human, just like the rest of us. But they had a special approbation from God. This was the institution of the early church. Today, I would advocate that as we deal with the sins that come in the church, we deal with them personally, from first-hand knowledge. First-hand knowledge. So there, there are many today who like to use an incomplete understanding of Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, to teach that we're not supposed to judge at all. I see that all the time. Oh, don't judge. It's not understanding the application. In... Uh, Jesus, in his teaching, was condemning nearly everything the Pharisees did. In Matthew chapter 6, he alluded to their actions when they did something to or for the poor. It was always done out in the open for praise, for the praise of men. When they prayed, it was done with their arms up and their eyes closed in public so that everybody would know what a holy, praying person they were. When the Pharisees fasted, they looked like they were going to die that very day. And they did it on purpose. So that everyone would know that they were fasting. And often, I read some accounts in, uh, about early, early Pharisee, about, about the early uh, Jews as well. But it was talking about the Pharisees who <laughs> sometimes they'd been fasting for two hours. That breakfast was two hours ago. So they'd been fasting for two hours. And they would pace themselves up to look like they'd been fasting for weeks. It is in this context that this teaching on judging was given. In John 7:24. Jesus explicitly says, do not judge according, to, judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So there is a righteous way to judge. And again, we'll talk about how that's done as much as why and, and the, the process. <laughs> um, Jesus explicitly says that we are to judge righteously. And he again is contrasting proper living with pharisaical living. When he was talking about this in the same way here, Paul was not judging this man's heart, but rather the actions that he had committed. He had taken his father's wife as a wife. He was living with his father's wife. Those were the actions Paul was judging. He didn't know why. He didn't know what was going on in either of the people's hearts, but he knew that what he was doing was wrong. Those actions were antithetical to biblical morality and had to be dealt with immediately. So, any questions or comments about verse 3? Verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, verse 5, he says, I have decided to deliver such an one. But verse 4. In the name. After having made the statement that he had judged the actions of this man already, (laughs) he now reminds the Corinthians that church discipline Properly applied will be done, will be done, properly applied, 
and there's a lot to this, will be done in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why it is so important that it be done according to the, to the parameters of Scripture. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus himself lays out the process for church discipline and explains to his listeners that they are prop, that they are that they properly follow this procedure, confirming every fact. Upon applying discipline, they can be confident that their binding of this wayward person on earth will be approved in heaven. And that, in fact, just as Paul mentioned that he would be with their, them in spirit, Paul said, I will be with you. I'm with you in spirit in Corinth. Jesus himself said the same thing. Indeed, Paul, I believe, would have been making his statement in light of the fact that this was Jesus teaching. Matthew chapter 18. 15 through 20. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Not in the open. Not in front of people. Not for brownie points that you know what you're doing. In private. Make sure it's private. Plan it privately. Execute it privately. Don't talk about it. It's got to be done in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother and the situation is resolved. Then we can, you can stop mourning. Wouldn't that be great? Isn't that great? Has that happened? I've had that happen where I dealt with a situation. And I've had it happen to me where someone dealt with a situation. And I acknowledged what I had done. Realized it. Repented. And it was over. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. This implies that this is not just going to be a nice little visit. Hey, how you doing? You want me to knock that stuff off? They want you to knock it off too. Let's have a nice day. That's not what it's talking about at all. It would be a question and answer because some convincing may have to go on. Some, some facts may have to come out that are not, that weren't at light. It's very possible that when you went to the person alone, they didn't feel confident in sharing with you what was actually going on. Maybe something was going on you didn't know about. But when you take two or three people, maybe one of those people is, is a person they know and they trust. Now they feel confident to share the facts. Facts come out, changes the nature of the situation. That can happen. It is so important that we not, we not quickly judge situations. How many times have we judged a situation in anger or in upset and we were dead wrong? Never happened to me, of course, today, since 20 minutes ago. But it happens. So important. You can impugn someone's character so quickly. And that sometimes is really hard to get back. When, when information gets out about somebody that's really of a heinous nature, that isn't true. Confirm every fact. If he refuses to listen to them, okay, now, now we've got a situation that needs to be dealt with in the church level. Tell it to the church. And so then that would be a, a meeting would be called. The person would be called before the church to defend his actions, her actions, and so grateful this doesn't happen very often, but it has to sometimes. The church needs to be purged of leaven occasionally. And Paul will talk about that. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, well, first, let me finish verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. <laughs> tax collector. We should start saying, let him be to you as a Gentile and the IRS. You think the NSA heard that? Well, it's going to be re recorded. That's fine. That's fine. Again, I say to you, or truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, and he's talking about church discipline, 
shall be have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Whatever you judge to be dealt with in this way or judge to be dealt with in this way, following the proper procedure, will be bound or loosed in the same way in heaven. And Jesus says, and again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done to them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. So when the one, when the two went, when the three went with the one to the erring brother, Jesus was there in their midst. When the church dealt with it, Jesus was there in their midst. This is what he's talking about. And this is what Paul, I believe, is alluding to when he says, I with you in spirit. In the same way the Lord Jesus said it. So there is simply no truth in the, to the idea that we are not to judge. In fact, we are to be in a proper way, in a proper way, <laughs> very judgmental. Which is why I don't understand why everybody doesn't like Green Bay. But, you know, there is that. But our judgment must not be hypocritical. It must not be superficial. It must not be uninformed, nor must it be quick. So it must be righteous. It must be sincere. It must be informed. And it must be slow. Slow to judgment. Slow to anger. Is not the Father slow to anger? But quick to mercy? How quickly would we, would we prefer mercy on someone that we think is getting their just due. Uh, I'd like to be saying this as though I'd never been a person who's been there. But unfortunately, sometimes, well, they made their bed. <laughs> the Father never says that about us. So, we must not, it must be righteous, clear, sincere, informed, and slow. It must be based upon Scripture and applied prayerfully, and lovingly, and that's where the time comes in, prayerfully especially. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in corporate prayer after the first and second attempt. We must not judge the wrong actions of others with an inner delight that they're finally getting their just due. We must not. We must mourn it. We should mourn it. It should devastate us. We all know that but, there, but for the grace of God, there go we. As Paul said to the Corinthians in this particular situation, they should have been mourning it, not tolerating it and ignoring it. And we have so much of a wealth of information in Scripture as to how to deal with it in a proper way. We have the way to deal with it, but it's, it's, it's the hardest thing to do, isn't it? It's much easier to just fellowship and meet and, and spend time together in enjoyment. But when you have to confront someone over a, a blatant immorality, it's hard, isn't it? It should be hard for us. It should be hard. Uh, none of us are perfect. That's the other thing. The only person who is perfect gave us the method to do it. Any comments or questions about verse 4? Verse 5. So I'm going to read verse 4 again because this is kind of a package. I tend to break up the flower into little bits and pieces of petals. But in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, I, Paul says, have decided, judged, to deliver such an one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh because he's a jerk. No. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul's hope, Paul's desire here, even for this horrendous sinner, was that he might, get, he might be saved. His spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. 
This is a strong and terrifying statement when you break it down in its component parts. We can know for certain Paul did not say this lightly. Huh, I've judged you already. He didn't say this lightly. I, I, I still can imagine him rubbing his forehead and thinking, this has got to be done. It isn't being done in Corinth the proper way. It's got to be done. Maybe if I give them the way, they'll follow suit. It's got to be done. And so then he says this, I have decided to deliver. It, the, the Greek word for deliver comes from a word that means to give someone custody of someone else. So you parents, occasionally you trust certain people to take care of your babies. And you give them custody of those babies knowing they will be properly cared for in a way you would want. That's kind of what's going on here. He's going to give Satan custody of this man. Why? It, it, it comes, it's a strong judicial term indicating an active sentencing. He sentenced him. This was a judicial decree Paul offered up. Paul was willing to see this man's flesh and life ruined so that his spirit might be saved. You know, I, I guess I've never really carefully thought about some of the punishments we have for um, different types of offenses in our court and our judicial system. Just never really thought about it. I've never been in the judicial system other than to testify as a supposed expert on stuff. <laughs> Those people really got a bill of sale. But so you you sentence someone to 25 years to life. Think of I, I never really thought about that until I was reading through this because when I was looking up the words justice and deliver and and the idea that it was judicial, they have just been given up. They have just given up 25 years of their life to a how big, however big a prison cell is, four by eight, six by eight, four by twelve, something like that, for twenty-five years. That's that's kind of what's going. That's what's going on here. Paul is confirmed. He's 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 giving custody of this man's life and actions to Satan, that they might be ruined and destroyed, so that his spirit might be saved. Unfortunately, sometimes it takes smacking into the bottom of the barrel hard for some folks to wake up. Later, writing to Timothy, Paul indicates that he delivered Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan for much the same reasons in 1 Timothy 1.20 uh, so that they would learn not to blaspheme the Lord. It's likely possible, this is my opinion, that this man was saved. That was living with his mother's, his father's wife, his stepmother. It's possible. Paul indicates, um, and so it shows how important the purity of the church is to God. He will take such a one away to be with himself rather than leave them there to leaven the body, to introduce arsenic into the body. It's likely that he repented. And, and, and this gives me great delight if this is what happened. I, this is, and I read that this is other commentators' opinion, but it's, it's by no means settled. And, and, and God saw no reason to give us clear indication that this is true, obviously, or he would have. But for me, it was very comforting. It's likely that he was the one spoken of in 2 Corinthians, and he repented. And Paul had to indicate to these pendulum-swinging Corinthians, do this, do this, here's balance over here. He had to indicate to them, he had to counsel them that um, they, he was the one in 2 Corinthians that Paul indicated needed to be forgiven and comforted. Who knows how long it took? It is important that when, it is important when someone who has offended greatly repents that they be received lovingly back into the body. And that's hard. 
especially if you're the one that's offended, that's been offended, or you and a group of your of your brethren have been offended by this person. But if someone who has greatly offended, has greatly sinned, is confronted and repents, or spends time under the custody of Satan, in the custody of Satan, and then repents and comes back to the Lord, comes back or comes to the Lord for the first time, we don't know that. That's their heart. It's important that they be received into the body lovingly and, and, and excitedly, happily. So, and, and obviously this is something that occurs sufficient for such an one as this punishment, Paul said, which was inflicted by the majority. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such an one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Well, wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Receive them back. And in 2 Thessalonians 3, 14, 15, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Admonish him as a brother. More, most important to remember, though, is that the whole purpose of delivering someone to Satan in this matter is expressly for their restoration. Not so that they'll get their punishment, they're just due. We should never, never have that attitude. Not vengeance, not revenge. Redemption is the goal. This should temper our application of this concept. One commentator put it this way. Church discipline is not a group of pious policemen out to catch a criminal. Rather, it is a group of broken-hearted brothers and sisters seeking to restore an erring member of the family. Church discipline is not a group of pious policemen out to catch a criminal. Rather, it is a group of broken-hearted brothers and sisters seeking to restore an erring member of the family. And then leave the results to God. Leave the work to God in their lives and their hearts. So, any comments or questions about verse 5? About being delivered to Satan? Paul goes back to this arrogance and boasting again. Your boasting is not good. It's not good. They've been bragging about tolerating this, obviously. He said it's not good. It's, it's horrible. Don't you know, do you not know that a little leaven <coughs> leavens the whole lump of dough? Paul is still harking back to their improper understanding of, tar of arrogance. It was actually of tolerance, excuse me. I switched the terms because that's what it is. He was harking back to their improper understanding of tolerance. It was actually arrogance. In chapter 4, verse 18, he says, Now, some of you have become arrogant, so I'm not coming to you. Wrongly allowing wickedness in the body will eventually have that wickedness permeate the entire body. I don't care how strong the body is. I don't care how good a preacher you've got. I don't care how dedicated your elders are. If you wrongly allow sin like that in the body, it'll eventually permeate the entire body to one degree or another. The Corinthians were actually bragging about this. We're so tolerant. It is common to brag about something when we think we are doing something elevated or special. When we brag in this manner, when it's arrogant, the Lord calls it evil. James 4.16. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Evil. Their boasting, as a matter of fact, was a consequence and a common companion to the prideful arrogance that they had, that Paul had been dealing with, has been dealing with in the first four chapters. Sometimes believers may think that they are immune to the leaven of sin into other people's lives. But the fact is, 
We can become who we spend time with. You know, I've heard, you are what you eat. But how come I don't look like chocolate? So I know that's not true. But who you spend time with, they will influence you. They will influence you. Uh, We become like who we spend time with. Scripture admonishes us to be very careful who we have as companions. Do not be deceived. 1 Corinthians 15, 33 and 34. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, does that mean if you ride in a cab ride with someone who's like you end up doubling up in a cab ride with a with a con man that you're going to become a con man? No, that's not what I'm. And Paul deals with that because that's what the Corinthians thought. No, that's not what it means. It means who you have fellowship with, who you spend time with. Proverbs 13:20. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. And you can walk with wise men often reading scripture and reading good books. First, second, excuse me, second Timothy 2, 16 through 18. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Gangrene. That talk will spread like gangrene. What do you have to do when your legs got gangrene in it? There isn't anything even modern science can do about it. You gotta hack it off. And you gotta hack it off above the gangrene where there's good flesh. <laughs> Hopefully you have anesthetic. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them, these two guys Paul talked about delivering to Satan so they wouldn't blaspheme, are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Men who have gone astray from the truth saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some. This church is a church full of people with strong faith. But if you begin, if any of us began to spend quality time with people who have not the truth, it will affect us. It will affect you. Paul, I will jump ahead a little. Um, Paul deals with this in verses hence. But, but basically, it's the time you spend in communion with, like family. You spend lots of time with them. They are your best friends. They are the people you go to for advice. They are the ones that you leave your children with. Okay, Those are the people that you fellowship with. You are two fellows in the same ship all the time. Or not all the time, but, but often. And that is different from passing conversation, from preaching in the park, from trying to encourage someone to trust the Lord. Those, that's different. So I'm, I'm trying to think. You can think of people in your mind that you would not want to spend a lot of time with. Those are people you wouldn't fellowship with. You wouldn't regularly eat dinner with them, eat breakfast with them, go out to coffee with them. Uh, you write books. You wouldn't collaborate with them on a book. You wouldn't say... Uh, unless if they're a teacher and you need some pointers on grammar, that's one thing. But someone who has expertise in the same area you do of writing, but they're not a believer. Actually, they're kind of profane. Don't find someone else to get your, your, your teaching from, your help from, is what I'm getting at. Does that make sense? Okay. And Paul will talk about that because the Corinthians, it's, it was, it's amazing. Uh, Paul will counsel the Corinthians not to take this concept to the extreme, three verses hence. It is also worth noting that people who misinterpret Scripture will often live out that misinterpretation by going to extremes in their lives. 
Very little balance in their lives. They, they go after the latest teaching that comes out. I have, I have a policy, that my, and this kind of applies, at my surplus store that when a new product comes out, and it's the latest, and it's the greatest, I wait until somebody else sees how it breaks. Because too many times something came out in the world of shoes, in the world of surplus, military equipment, and you never heard about it. You know why? Because it wasn't that good. And it broke real easy. And it didn't function in the way proper. So I wait. I back up. I wait until it, and, and see what happens. I get, I get uh, empirical evidence. Um, people who, they swing from pendulum, from pendulum side to pendulum side. Something new comes out, they're the first to embrace it. Be careful about that stuff. Don't, don't, don't we have this? I know that's an, it's an old fallback position that preachers who don't have much to say often say. No. It is the fallback position. We have this. Everything that is good comes from this. Everything that is proper, effective, and glorifying to God comes from this. So, I, I, I hear about, sometimes I, and as an elder, I need to be more aware of what's going on in the world. But I, I just don't pay attention to the, some of the silliness that goes on. Been there, haven't done that, fortunately, by God's grace. Paul was admonishing the Corinthians to be aware of this. Not to be living in the extremes. The only extreme we can live in that will be effective is the extreme of devotion to Jesus Christ. To love Him beyond all others by a factor that can't be measured. That's the extreme we can be, we can be trustworthy to, to live in. Any, any, let's see, that was verse 5. 6. Any comments about verse 6? How many of you use yeast in your bread making? That's a really dumb question. That's like saying, how many of you use a 916th inch wrench to tighten a 916th inch nut? You know. <laughs> but, but I had to ask it. Okay. So any help you can give me on some of this? I studied it out and read about it. But I've never made bread. I've, I've caused Kim's to fall. <laughs> She's always so gracious. Well, this is going to be, these will be scones, she says. <laughs> We aren't going to have bread. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, Paul says in verse 7. Just as you are, in fact, unleavened for Christ our Passover household has been sacrificed. <laughs> Church discipline properly practiced in an attitude of prayer and humility will have the result of purifying the body while hopefully communicating to the one being disciplined the severity and danger of their actions. It has two effects. It has an effect on the body. And it has an effect on the offender. They must be made aware that they put themselves and others in danger. They become the person that you can't spend time around. Because their actions will leaven you. And maybe they love you and want to spend time around you. And you love them and you want to spend time around them. And that's when you have to say, I can't. We've got to do something about this. I can't. Because of what the Scripture says. And you know that. You can say that. Especially if they're believers. Or uh, if they've spent time in the Word. Even if they're not. The, the Lord can use that. Unfortunately today, churches never look into the past of those who come into their congregation. And so it's very easy for someone who was dis disciplined in one church to simply take up residence in another. And if anything is brought up about the past, they will simply bemoan the fact that they were unjustly treated. This is not to say that sometimes improper discipline occurs, because it most certainly does. And this is not to say that someone comes into a community and starts shopping churches looking for one that preaches the word. 
that's what you have to do. Um, I, we do that with grocery stores. My wife does that with coffee shops. You shop around until you find one that's actually preaching the word. If you are brand new in a community. So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about church hopping. Church hopping of local residents who have been disciplined in one church. They jump from church to church until they hear something that affirms their lifestyle. That's not what I'm talking. That's what I'm talking about. Um, it's not to say that. So it is incumbent upon a body to know who is entering into fellowship and membership and membership. When Jim does his membership classes, all of what is taught here, he doesn't he doesn't hide any of the counsel of, of God from them that God has been pleased to deliver through this church when he does his membership classes. In ancient societies, now here's where I may need the, the help with yeast. When a batch of bread was made, a pinch of dough would be broken off and saved. It would be fermented in water and used to make a new batch rise. That is, it would leaven it. At, the, at some point, the person would start from scratch so as not to keep introducing older materials that may have acquired a bacterial presence. In the same way, sin must be removed from the body individual and from the body corporate by repentance, and in this case, by church discipline, so that the body becomes unleavened again. I love it if once we were saved, we never sinned again. That doesn't happen. And so I am grateful for what I'm going to be speaking about here in just a moment. Christians should be celebrating a continual Passover. The sacrifice that Jesus Christ made was perfect and removes everything from our old life which would taint us judicially. We are to keep that fresh by repentance as we fail. First John 1 John 1.9 If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He, again, grace, our confession doesn't wipe the sin away. He is faithful to forgive us and righteous, to forgive us and righteous. It's righteous for him to forgive us when we repent. Boy, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful. During Passover week, all leaven was to be removed from the house and only unleavened bread was to be eaten as a reminder of the Passover sacrifice. Paul is calling the Corinthians to return this, excuse me, to remove this leaven and again return in this area to righteousness and in all other areas in their lives in which he is dealing with them. He is telling them to be what they are, born again, blood-bought, Passover-blessed believers. When the Israelites were brought out of Egypt, they baked bread to sustain themselves while they traveled, but they were not allowed to add leaven. There was a practical reason. They did not have time to wait for the dough to rise. But also for them, bread represented the maintenance of life and the Passover and the Exodus. And the Passover, excuse me. And the Exodus represented deliverance from their old life in Egypt, moving to the new life and promise. Let me read that again. I didn't put commas in there where they belong. Commas are very important, aren't they? And I'm not going to say it when I do. It was, I, I, I uh, speak this into my dragon naturally speaking, and I forgot to say comma. During Passover week. Okay. When the Israelites were brought out of Egypt, they'd bake bread. First of all, they, didn't have, they did not have time to wait for the dough to rise. Also, for them, bread represented the maintenance of life and the Passover. And the Exodus represented the deliverance from their old life in Egypt, moving into new life and the promise. I'm going to just circle that. I'll fix that someday. So they moved from the old life into the new life. That's what the Passover signifies. The leaven represented the old life. 
the way of Egypt and the world which was, which was to be done away with. So when they left Egypt, and in every Passover since, the Lord commanded that nothing unleavened shall be seen among you. Exodus 3, 13, 3, and 7. So they had to throw every bit of their leaven out. In the same way, Paul is reminding the Christians in Corinth that they were to be separated from their old life, and us as well. This would be especially pertinent in Corinth, for the old life was so immoral. They were to bring nothing of their old life into the new life, nor are we. The picture of the Passover and God's perfect Passover lamb brings that home to the Corinthians and to us. The payment of Jesus' blood severs us from the dominion of sin and from the penalty of judgment. The Corinthians and we should remove everything from the old life that would taint the new life. That's why they're being called to remove this man. First Corinthians, one commentator said this, emphasizes that the gospel issues in transformed lives. I want to show you this. This is remarkable. The Trinity is here. First Corinthians emphasizes that the gospel issues in transformed lives, that salvation in Christ is not complete without God and Christ-like attitudes and behavior. Again, that's attitudes. We are not little gods at all. The classic expression of Paul's understanding of the relationship between gospel and ethics, indicative and imperative, is to be found in 5.7. Ethics for Paul is ultimately a theological issue, pure and simple. Everything has to do with God and what God is about in Christ and in the Spirit. Thus, one, the purpose or basis of Christian ethics is the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Number two, the pattern for such ethics is Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. And number three, the principle is love. Precisely because it alone reflects God's character. And number four, the power is the Spirit. Note, note in this that the Trinity is involved. The Father gets the glory. The pattern for living out that life is the Son. And the power to live that way is the Holy Spirit. The Trinity gets the glory. Any comments or questions about verse 8, 7? Some people call this one of the most important verses in Scripture. And uh, in light of the fact that it incorporates the Trinity into the way we give glory to God, the way we live our lives, and the fact that it is the Holy Spirit that is the power of that living, makes it so. Let's pray. Father, thank you that everything in your word is true from beginning to end. That everything in your word is a blessing to us. That everything in your word gives us the ability to live righteous lives so that we might glorify your Father. Glorify the Father which is in heaven. Let us do that today. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.